forward to the time coming soon when we will send her and get to hear about what goes on with that. Well, we are going to continue in our series in 1 Peter. We are in chapter 4, this series on learning to live as elect exiles from uh, this wonderful book. We're making our way. We'll probably finish up sometime in the end of the summer. I trust that you're being built up in God's glorious truth as we prepare to hear from His Word, from God's Word this morning, and to encounter the living God through His Word. Let's go before Him in prayer. Lord, we just thank You that You are so kind and merciful that You, that you choose and love and enjoy dwelling with Your people. Lord, it's really a miracle. It's wonderful uh, to think about that and to realize that. And we just are so thankful. We ask You, Lord, to be here with us now as we look at Your Word. Lord, we want to hear from You. You are the living God. You are glorious and, and beyond our understanding even. And yet, You reveal Yourself to us by Your Spirit through Your Word. So we thank You and we are hungry for You, Lord. We need You this morning. And we ask You, Lord, to come and feed us, refresh us, change us, and glorify Your name, Lord, as we look at Your Word. Thank You for Your great grace and mercy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We'll be in chapter 4, reading verses 1 through 6. Peter has spoken about Christ and His suffering, and what He's accomplished, what that means for us. And so he continues in verse 1 saying, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. 1 Peter 4, 1-6 Well, the past two weeks have been uh, intense weeks for us as a church family, for many of us, and for me personally. We spent time with our friend John Mark as he passed on to be with the Lord. As we celebrated, remembered, and said goodbye to him for for now at least in the body. For me as a pastor, I want you to know that these were some of the richest and most intense days I have known. Not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, as a human being. And in God's providence, we had these six verses planned for today as the message, long before we knew of any of these things. 
And I believe that God providentially has provided these six verses because He wants us to learn from even these past two weeks. I believe as I studied this passage, I felt God speaking to me and I believe wanting to speak to us to clarify some things, to help us interpret and understand some things. Not just to celebrate John as we've done appropriately, but also for us who are here, left behind, not yet in the Lord's presence, to live the remainder of our days with greater wisdom. John was a a dear friend of mine. We shared a lot of memories and a lot of adventures. Went through times of blessing and celebration as well as times of trial and hardship. We confessed our sin to each other, listened to each other, prayed for one another, encouraged one another in God's promises. We dreamed together, laughed together, went through different experiences together. I feel like I knew John pretty well and I believe he knew me fairly well. And as he went through this trial with cancer, it was like a close brother, a close friend going through cancer. And I found in these final two weeks just uh, closely identifying with him. I'm very thankful for the quality of time that I and I know others had with John. It was a gift. But there's something about these two weeks that stand out even greater than my friendship and our friendship with John. That goes beyond just that friendship. What I watched happen past two weeks, I watched a godly man die well. And that has changed my life. And I believe that God wants to give me and give us some definition to those changes that come when we watch a godly person die. To teach us some of those truths that our lives might be impacted. And these six verses are very appropriate for that. These six verses teach us some key truths. They teach us that suffering has a powerful, clarifying, and sanctifying effect on our outlook on life. It works in us as believers a potent Christ-like resolve to no longer waste our lives on sin and petty pursuits, but resolutely, wisely, joyfully live for what really matters and what really lasts. To live our life in God for His meaningful, glorious, and everlasting will. This passage calls us and tells us that we must resolve to live for what really matters. That we must resolve to live for what really matters. Peter talks about that we are to be resolved in light or because of suffering. We are to be resolved because of wasted time. And we are to be resolved because of the last judgment. And as we go, I will make commentary on some of the ways that being by with John helped me bring this, this passage into greater clarity and focus. So let's talk first about resolve because of suffering. Verses 1 and 2 say, say, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And when Peter uses this word flesh, he means the body, our earthly existence. And Peter in this section continues to draw lessons and inspiration from the suffering of Christ as he does throughout this letter. He calls us to arm ourselves, equip ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had in His suffering. That we might live the rest of our time in our earthly life no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, for God's glory, for God's purposes. Do you see at the end of verse 1 something that maybe is somewhat perplexing? Peter says something I think is amazing. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And I believe that Peter is not just talking about Jesus. He's talking about whoever, for every believer, who has suffered in the flesh, who has suffered in the body, has ceased from sin. Wow. What does he mean there? How does suffering produce some sort of ceasing from sin? What does he mean? Well, Let's take a look at Christ's suffering first because that is the pattern that Peter establishes for us and for every believer. I think we have to show overhead Hebrews 5, 7-9. speaks of Christ's suffering. It says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews chapter 5 speaks of that. There's a parallel passage that I think Hebrews 5 is, is referring to in Mark chapter 11. So let's take a look there. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know the story there. As Jesus thought and wrestled through what was going to happen to him the the next day. He was facing his crucifixion on the cross. He was facing more than just the physical torture, as horrible as that would be. He was also facing the wrath of God, the holy justice of God. As he looked at the cross, the notion that he would have to drink the cup of God's wrath for sinners, that he would have to bear God's holy and right punishment for sin himself and drink that wrath to the last drop. That notion for him was overwhelming. Understandably so. And so he wrestled in prayer with the Lord. He had loud cries and tears and so forth. And he says in Mark 11, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. And then later in that section he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And then says, yet not what I will, but what you will. As Jesus was there in the garden and on the cross, he faced the greatest loss that anyone ever could face. He certainly faced the loss of all earthly comfort. He faced the loss of of earthly goods. He faced the loss of earthly friends. All of those things. He faced the loss of everything. Every good thing 
that we enjoy in this life, He faced that. But even more than that, He faced the loss of relationship with His Father. He faced the loss of the Father's good pleasure in pouring out His wrath on the Son. He faced unimaginable loss. Greater than anything we might ever experience in life or in death. He faced that. And as He contemplated this notion of this loss and of the punishment of God's wrath on Him, an unbearable reality for Him as the God-man, it overwhelmed Him. And He cried out, Remove this cup from Me. They didn't stop there, did He? What did He say next? Not My will, but Your will. As He faced that cost, of drinking that cup. He certainly wanted his own comfort, understandably. It was horrible what he faced. And so he asked the Lord to remove the cup, but there was a higher priority. There was something more valuable to him than anything this world would offer. There was something more valuable to him than the losses that he faced. The glory of the Father, the will of the Father was more precious to him and more worthy, more worthwhile than anything else. And so He said, not My will, but Your will be done. He submitted Himself in that loss, in that suffering, to the glory of God. It was a wrestling match for Him as a man. It was real. But He said, Lord, I want You. Father, I want Your glory. I want Your will, not mine, more than anything else. This is how suffering works in us. Cessation of sin. The Son of Man never sinned. But the principle is the same. He had to make a decision on that cross. What was more important? His own pleasure? His own comfort? As legitimate as that might have been? Or the glory of God? And in His suffering, because of who He was, because He's God the Son, as He faced that difficult decision as God, He chose what is better. And so in that sense, ceased from sin. And Peter's drawing on that for believers. And as I watched John this past, these past two weeks, I saw this principle at work. A miracle took place in John's life. The gold that lies within, Christ in him, Christ in us, the faith born of the Holy Spirit, the divine power because of that to count all else as loss compared with the surpassing greatness of Christ shone forth in John's life. He treasured the will of God and the glory of God as greater than all other comforts. And if you know John, you know that he had many reasons to enjoy comforts here. Humanly speaking, he had reasons to complain. And to complain bitterly even. Only 43, recently married, an essential part of a growing church at the height of his career ability, anticipating a bright and productive future, and then seeing that all taken away through cancer. 
Why not complain? Because he knew his God. And he knew his future in God was secure. He knew Christ had died for him and lived in him. He knew God's purposes. He didn't understand it all. None of us did. God's purposes are often mysterious. We don't know. But John recognized that God is in control even over tragedies such as cancer and death. He knew that God is the sovereign one. And so he was able to submit to God in those last days. Asking, and I asked right up to the end, Lord, remove this cup if there's any way to heal him. Do it. But I know his prayer was, not my will, but your will be done. And in that sense, John ceased from sin. He ceased living for himself and submitted to the Lord and the Lord's purpose and treasured God's glory and God's will as mysterious as it is at points, as higher than any earthly comfort. Facing death and suffering has this effect on us. It brings everything into focus and helps us remember and decide on what really matters and what doesn't matter so much. Peter points to this in this passage, but doesn't finish there. He doesn't say, well, just wait to your last days and do it. When your days of suffering comes, that's when you'll have this new perspective. He doesn't say that, does he? He tells us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. To arm ourselves, to equip ourselves with the same way of thinking. We are to think the same way that John thought that last week. We are to think the same way that the Savior thought in the garden. Your will be done. Your purposes, your ways are better. Your glory is more precious to me. Seeing your will being done, seeing you working your plan, seeing the gold that's in my life shining forth through suffering is more precious to me than anything else. Peter's calling us to arm ourselves, to equip ourselves with that same way of thinking for the whole Christian life. So this truth is about all of life. This is a, a basic perspective that God wants us to have. This is not some optional, cool philosophy for Christian intellectuals. Living like, living like you have already suffered and ceased from sin, just it's some sort of higher understanding. It's not some higher way of Christian living for the super spiritual. This is a basic approach to life fundamental to every believer. To treasure God and the salvation we have in Him and His glory in and through our lives as greater than anything else. To count every other thing as lost compared to that. doesn't mean count the other things as bad and forgo them. Just put them in the right perspective. God's purposes. God's glory. God working His eternal good plan. And enjoying Him and knowing Him is of more worth than anything else. It's basic Christian equipment. When I was a kid, 
I used to have this terrible recurring dream. Maybe you had one like it. I found myself in the hallways of my middle school, and all my friends were there. Hallways were crowded. And I was in the hallway, and everything was relatively normal, except for one thing. I either had my pajama bottoms on only, or just my underwear in some versions. And as I walked the hallways, I was aware of that. People were aware of that somehow. And the biggest problem was I had no way in my dream to get out of the hallway. Did you ever have a dream like that? No? Sorry, I'm all alone. You can help me later on. Maybe I need some, some counseling. But, uh, but I couldn't get out of the, out of the, the junior high, the, the middle school. I was stuck and I, the dream would go on and I'd just try to find somewhere to go hide or go try to find my locker. I, that was another one. Try to, I, couldn't, I couldn't find my locker because my locker had my clothes in it and, and I just kept on like it moved around and, and just the dream would go on. Um, and there was something about that, that dream that was just terrible, being there in my pajama bottoms or my underwear. For us as Christians, without this mindset, we are, like me in my dream, in our underwear, un- unequipped for life. This is a fundamental perspective for the Christian life. And we will not be able to live a successful Christian life without this perspective. This is a key to success. It's a key to joy in God. It's a key to holiness. To treasure God and His will. Knowing Him. Enjoying Him as your highest pleasure. As your highest joy. As your highest good. We must have that perspective. Because it's true. And because it leads us in all the things God wants for our lives. Joy, strength, the ability to endure suffering and give God glory. Each day we must rearm ourselves and re-equip ourselves with this perspective to once again recite to ourselves the glorious Gospel. Christ came and died for my sins and rose again. He's the lover of my soul and I have died to sin with Him and live now in Him and He is my joy. He is my King. He is my reason for this day. He is alive in me and He will be with me throughout this day and then I will go and be with Him when my time comes forever. That's my life today. We need to re-equip ourselves every day with that truth. To have that same mindset that Christ had in His regard for the Father in Gethsemane. To live our life that way. Treasuring God. Finding our life in Him. We need not suffer to have this mindset. Though we all will suffer sooner or later. This is something we are to equip ourselves with no matter where we are. No matter what season of life we're in. We are to be resolved to live for what matters most in life and through the wisdom that suffering brings. We are also to be resolved because of wasted time. Peter goes on in this passage. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter's audience had experienced these things. They had already lived these alternative lifestyles. They had already checked out the other options to living in and for God. 
They had spent time and wasted time living this way. Peter is calling them to no longer waste their times doing this. In their day, it was very normal and regular to, to be part of different festivals and religious celebrations that would occur actually fairly frequently, even weekly. And like now, back then, one of the greatest pleasures, the highlight of the week was a good party. And by the way, parties and celebrations are biblical. Uh, that's not the problem that, that Peter's getting at. The difference was their parties had the height of the party bringing themselves enjoyment and pleasure without the glory of God. Really rejecting the glory of God. Rejecting God. Pleasure without God. And so the height of their pleasure was to indulge their sensual appetites. They would have these parties where they would just gorge on food and, and, and might even vomit so they could just keep on eating and eating and drinking and drinking. They would get very drunk. Some of the parties included sexual morality and perversions we don't even want to think about. These parties they had were about indulging their pleasures. And they were a highlight for them. It was indulging their pleasures without reference to God and His glory apart from God. It was glorying in the creation rather than the Creator. And these celebrations got more bizarre, more perverse, and more perverse. You know, actually, that is the pattern for cultures and individuals. If we find our pleasure apart from God, if we find our pleasure apart from, apart from God's glory and His goodness, we will, seek, we will seek pleasure in the creation rather than the Creator. And that, that, that seeking after that pleasure will get more and more extreme and more and more perverse because you're always seeking for a greater high. Because the creation is not meant to bring us that sort of pleasure. It's, the creation is good. A good night's sleep is a blessing, isn't it? That's something to enjoy. But if sleep is, your, is where you find the highlight of your life, the glory of your life is sleep, you're never going to be satisfied, right? I mean, you can sleep all day long. It's not going to get any better. You can only get so much out of sleep. You can only get so much out of food. Food's good to enjoy. And what happens when we choose to find our pleasure and joy in these temporal, created things that are good, it gets weirder and weirder as we try to suck out of these things some glory. And we can take good things, relationships even, family and marriage even, and try to draw out of these things some pleasure and joy that's not there. That's absent. And so that's what happens. There's this tendency, this decline in cultures and individuals that, that goes on. And, and Peter's readers have known this. They've seen it. They've wasted their time trying to suck glory out of stuff. He says, it's enough. You must arm yourself with this different way of thinking. This way of thinking that has resigned yourself, has resolved to find your glory, your joy in God. Because He is most enjoyable and most glorious. Now, you might be thinking, well, not a problem really. We don't do that stuff like that. The Roman orgies and all that and the food thing and the vomiting, that's so gross, I'd never even want to be any part of that. So this isn't a problem for me or for us. We live in this culture that's 
semi-Christianized, and so that we don't see that stuff a whole lot. So, Peter, what's the application here? Well, I would say that the only difference is a matter of degree. That if we are finding our joy and our pleasure in stuff and not in God, it's the same heart. We just haven't traveled down the road as far as they did. It's the same heart. And so we can ask ourselves the question about every aspect of life, am I in what I'm doing here? Relying on God, enjoying God, and living to promote His glory. And we can take that question to every aspect of life. That's what we're called to. That's the mindset. To treasure Him. To want His glory. His will above all things. So, let's look at food. Do we eat for the glory of God? Thanking Him for the food. Enjoying its goodness. And wisely eating to sustain our bodies. Versus eating merely for our sensual pleasure and comfort. I love to eat. I love good food. I know you guys do. The question is, when I eat, is there an awareness of God? Am I thankful? Is it, is, am I enjoying the goodness of the food? And I want to be wise in how I eat the food. Or is this about my idol called food? When I feel bad about life, I stuff my face. Or do I feel like i just got to eat and eat and eat until I'm so stuffed and without any regard for God? Do I eat food for the glory of God? Or does my eating of food resemble... The Romans. How about sleep? Do I sleep to the glory of God? Resting appropriately. Relying on God as we close our eyes. Recognizing and doing that, you know what? I'm not sovereign. And I don't have to run the universe 24-7. I am limited and made by Him. And I have a part to play that He's given me. And if He hadn't given it to me, I wouldn't have it. So I don't need to be awake all the time to keep the universe running. I can actually shut my eyes and the the world won't come crashing down. Sleep can be worship, recognizing our dependency on God. Do we sleep that way? Relying on God, remembering He's the Good Shepherd, that He makes us lie down in green pastures. Or do we sleep too little and anxiously? Or do we sleep too much to escape from life and hide? How about our work? Do we work in and for the glory of God, enjoying the gifts that God has given us, blessing others through our hard work, earning a wage to give to God and supply needs? Or do we work merely to make money and gain power? Leisure time. Leisure time is a blessing. It's a gift from God. Do we rest and refresh ourselves in a spirit of thankful worship? Or do we use our leisure time for selfish, unholy, or unwise pursuits? So we can ask those questions about every area of life. We can take that same question to family, education, sexuality, finances, relationships. Every aspect of life. Peter is calling us to do that in every aspect of life. To do it because it's what God calls us to. To do it because it is the most, most worthy pursuit. And it's only sometimes that when we're in suffering that we have that clarity of mind. That we realize, you know what? Thank God I belong to Him. Thank God that I, that I get to know Him and enjoy Him. 
That's what life's about. Sometimes that's what suffering does, and that's what Peter's alluding to. But we, we should not wait for times of suffering. We should equip ourselves with that mindset in all we do to live every day that way. So how about for you? How are you wasting your life? How are you pursuing lesser dependent glories rather than the one who is most glorious, most enjoyable, most worthy? How can you take steps of faith, believing in the Gospel, believing in the glory of God revealed in and through Christ, take steps of faith and obedience to resolve to live what matters most? So Peter calls us to resolve to live what matters most in light of suffering. He calls us to resolve to live for what matters most in light of wasted time. And finally, he finishes calling us to resolve to live what matters most because of the final judgment. Verse 4, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. As Peter calls his listeners to live what matters most, he recognizes that it's very different than the way the world lives. And as his readers live the way that matters most, it will run against the tide of culture. And that what will happen is people will mock his readers. And for us as well, as we live for what matters most, it will go against the tide of culture. And people will mock us. Culture will always be opposed to the way of God to different degrees. No matter how much the Gospel influences culture, and we certainly want to see it influence our culture greatly, there will always be a a flavor of rebellion in any culture. So there will never be any culture that is fully compliant with the kingdom of God until Christ returns. And so we find ourselves in a society that is going to be opposed to God. And it's interesting, by the way, if you were to go up to a person in the street and ask them about the basic philosophy and mindset and worldview of our culture or their own, they probably couldn't articulate for you what that is. Culture just kind of happens and people kind of get caught in the flow, the stream, the current of culture and just kind of go along with it. And you add to that the reality that we are sheep. God's made us as corporate people. We're corporately oriented and we tend to to herd together. So you take that ignorance and the herding aspect of who we are and you get a culture that kind of goes its way. So when somebody goes the other way, they get mocked. And we are called as Christians to go the other way. And so there'll be mocking that will endure. There'll be times when when people just will not be happy. They'll be surprised at us. And then angry at us. They might even think that somehow we're slighting them personally. Or the family perhaps. You don't do this anymore. What's up with that? Who do you think you are? They'll take it as a personal insult. So maybe you found times like this. You're around everybody and they're telling dirty jokes. And you might stay there. You might need to leave, but you might stay, but you don't participate, and they think, this guy's a killjoy. No sense of humor. Or gossip's going on, and and you're remaining, you're quiet, and they conclude you're self-righteous or aloof. Or, Or maybe 
You're in a circle of friends you know who party and sleep around and you don't. And you're labeled a holy roller. Those are the sort of things that will happen. Peter is speaking of. And we don't resist these things and do these things because, well, God doesn't have a sense of humor. I think God does. We are to be a joyful people who laugh. It's not that. It's not that relationships aren't important. It's not that we think having fun is inherently evil. We are called to these things because we want to live for what matters most. We want to live and enjoy the glory of God. And these things diminish the glory of God. They don't add to it. So there's a godly humor. There's a godly way to communicate. There's a godly way to have fun. But the culture has a very different understanding. The values are drastically different. So we, as we live for what matters most, we will find ourselves swimming upstream with the culture. The culture will mock us. Peter's answer for his readers, though, is to say that these folks, one day, very soon, will have to give an account to him who matters most. That they will have to stand before God and give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All men, past, present, and future, will stand before Him. And He will judge each one. He will reward the good. The good will be clear. There won't be any shades there. There won't be any confusion. The good will be clear as we stand in His presence. And He will reward the good. And the evil will be clear. And He will punish the evil. Each one will stand before Him as judge. And at that moment, our perspective will be right in light of Him. And culture will be evaluated by God Himself. And our choices, our actions will be evaluated by Him. So we can endure the mocking. We can endure the difficulty. None of us enjoy it. We want people to like us. We want people to feel at ease with us. We want to love them. We want them to know Christ and know the joy we have. Amen? It's hard. We don't enjoy that. But that's going to be a reality. And we need to trust God. God is the one who will make all things right. And we are to endure. We are to continue with this mindset. Being careful to not allow ourselves to be dragged into the mindset of the world. That is foolish. In the last section, Peter talks about preaching the Gospel. Also, in light of the final judgment, we are to preach the Gospel. He says, For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. We preach the Gospel because everybody will stand before God. And we want them to know that there is a wonderful provision for them. That they might find in the Gospel, in Christ's vicarious death, His victorious resurrection, they might find forgiveness and provision for their acceptance before a holy God. That on Judgment Day they may stand and be counted righteous in Christ. And also that they might live their lives, the remainder of their lives, in Christ for that which is truly good and worthwhile. And so we preach the Gospel. Even to those who have died. And when he says died... uh, Judged in the flesh, what he means is that as as sons of Adam, we all will die physically. But for those that are His, there is no spiritual death. We go to be with the Lord. And so in light of the final judgment, we 
We resolve to live what matters most. We resolve to endure the mocking that we might receive. We resolve to preach the Gospel, to share the good news that others might live for Him forever. If the band could come up as we conclude. I just want us to, to think of something right now. In light of this truth, in light of this passage, I believe I, I can't put words into John's mouth, John Mark's mouth, but as I watched him, I, I believe that these truths were operating in his life. And I just think, if John were with us bodily right now, if you could sit down with him, and could talk about life. Talk about your own life. He could reflect on his life. What might he say? How would he exhort you to finish your final days? What if he told you you only have two months to live? What adjustments might you make in how you live? What if it were two years? Two decades? Actually, in light of eternity, either with or without the Lord, whether we have run to Christ or not, two months, two years, two decades, two centuries are really no different. Time here is very short. And our final days bring a clarity to that, perhaps unlike any other suffering. But Peter calls us to think this way now. Not just waiting for the final days, but now to arm ourselves, to equip ourselves with this way of thinking. So in light of the wisdom suffering can bring, in light of perhaps already wasted years, in light of the final judgments, how are we going to resolve to live for what matters most? For God, His pleasing, perfect will, His glory. Let's take a minute just to be before the Lord, to think about that. And that God is gracious and patient with us. And I would believe He might only want to give us one small step, one adjustment to make perhaps. But let's just consider that before the Lord and then we'll close in song.
Spirit of God, I just ask your presence here with us, your power. Remind us of Christ and the grace and forgiveness that's